The scripture reading is from Ephesians 5, verses 8 through 20. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it is said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful, then, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drink, drunk on wine, but which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God, the Father for everything. In the name of our Lord, Jesus Christ, this is God's word. Thank you, Anna Lynn. Let's just ask for God's blessing now on his word. Lord, would you shine on us? Uh, show us who we really are in Christ. Help us to know how to walk in him. In Jesus' name, amen. Christians have a hypocrisy problem. In 2007, the Barna Research Group uh, conducted a survey that asked non-Christians to list the reasons why they rejected the faith. And interestingly, none of the top reasons had to do with Jesus or the Bible or theology. They had to do with Christians themselves. Um, Here are the top three answers. 95% said that they perceived Christians as being anti-homosexual. 87% said Christians were judgmental. And 85% said Christians were hypocritical. Being a hypocrite means saying one thing and and contradicting that by how you live. Um, And whether or not those perceptions are true of Christians the fact is that we have that reputation in the world. You, you watch the news. You see what happens. You see the church scandals, the pastors that um, embezzle money or commit some, have a moral failure. You see the way so-called Christians resort to violence and um, you know, make all kinds of commotion. But it's not just about headlines or people out there. It's about real lives in, in our world, in our, in our community. Two years ago, a few years ago, rather, a friend of mine invited a friend to their church. Well, the friend they invited happened to be next door neighbor to a family that attended that church. And this friend would often hear that family fighting and arguing. And so do you think she took that invitation to go to the church? No. And this is personal for you because many of you have told me that your faith was significantly damaged or derailed at some point in your life by a hypocritical 
Christian or Christian community, maybe a pastor who um, was unkind to you or a church that was cold and unwelcoming or uh, a church that split over some petty conflict. You've all been victims of Christians' hypocrisy. And it's even deeper than that because all of us have, have been hypocritical in our own lives. Perhaps you and I have been the reason someone has decided to take a pass on Jesus. It's easy to be a Christian on Sunday mornings, but what matters is that we are a Christian on Mondays uh, and Tuesdays and a Christian at work and at home, um, a Christian in public and in private, at, in our cars, at the gym, at family gatherings, that our, our life in Christ permeates and integrates all of who we are and what we do. And so here's what I want to get across to you this morning. By God's grace, walk the walk of the Christian life. Walk the walk. We, we talk the talk, but we have to also walk the walk. You've heard that expression before. And this is the theme of the third paragraph of our church membership covenant, which um, can be up on the screen in the next slide. We're going through this short series looking at our membership covenant. What does it mean to be a member of this church? And it's actually a good description of the Christian life in general. So um, let's look at this together. I'll read it. It says, I I put it in there this morning. If it's not there, then uh, there it is. (laughs) Last minute, Louie. That's who I am. It says... Sarah was was, uh, getting nervous there for a minute. (laughs) Let me read this. It says, We also engage to maintain family and personal devotions, to religiously educate our children, to seek the salvation of our relatives and acquaintances, to walk circumspectly in the world, to be just in our dealings, faithful in our engagements, and with integrity in our conduct. To avoid all gossip, backbiting, and excessive anger. To abstain from any adverse habits that may hinder our Christian witness. And to be zealous in our efforts to advance the kingdom of our Savior. So we're going to unpack that a little bit. Um, If you could leave that on the screen through the sermon, that would be helpful. But mainly, I want to look at what the Bible says here in Ephesians chapter 5. And there's one big truth I want you to get out of this passage. It's right here in verse 8. And if you have a Bible or grab a pew Bible, open up to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5 and verse 8 says, For you once were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of the light. Paul is saying you were this one thing, this one way, but now you are something else. Completely different. Um, You were once darkness. Now you are light. The truth is, um, there is a night and day difference between those who don't 
know Jesus and those who do. And sometimes I think we don't really believe that because we look around, we see lots of happy, healthy, um, non-Christian neighbors. And we think, does Jesus really make that much of a drastic difference in our lives? Or is being a Christian kind of um, window dressing on, on being a good citizen? Well, according to the Bible, there is a night and day difference between those who don't know Jesus and those who do, because for every believer in Jesus, something miraculous has happened. God has made that person into a new creation. He has taken them from darkness to light. You can't get any, any more different than darkness than light, can you? Those are polar opposites. And every believer, whether it's obvious or not, has been brought into the light. Paul says, you once were darkness. Not even you walked in darkness, you were darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. So he's saying, be who you are. You were this, you were darkness, now you are light. Live as children of light. Do you see that? Be who you are. That is, if you boil down the entire New Testament teaching on how to live, the ethics of the Christian life, it's, it's that. Be who you are. It's like, you are not a caterpillar anymore. You're a butterfly. So don't crawl around in the dirt. Fly, right? Or you are on Jesus's team now. So walk with your head high. Be who you are. Paul goes on to say, live as children of light, for the fruit of light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, and find out what pleases the Lord. He's saying you are now in a position with the lights on inside you to, to, to live a righteous life, to do right by other people, to, to be a person of truth and goodness, and to find out what pleases the Lord. Before Jesus saved us, we could not please the Lord. We could only please ourselves. And we are, we are bad masters of ourselves. But we have a new master, Jesus. And we get to find out what pleases him. One way to look at our covenant is this is, a, this is what we think it looks like to please the Lord in our, in our private lives. That's why our covenant also says we engage to maintain family and personal devotions. Why? Because um, there's some law that says we have to. Because it pleases the Lord. And there's no way to, in fact, know what pleases him if we don't stay connected to him and his word and in prayer. So here in this passage, we see that our command is to be who we are. Be who we are. And there are a few of things, a few things as Paul goes on that that entails. Uh, first, it requires a deliberate choice to put off the old self, to turn away from the sinful things that we've been saved from, and to embrace our life in Christ. 
Paul says in verse 11, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. And in this uh, passage uh, previous to what was read, he lists many of what those fruitless deeds of darkness are. He says, uh, talks about things like lying and stealing and vulgarity, bitterness, rage, anger, malice, sexual immorality. And we could, we could add to that list, right? Things that are part of the old way of life. And Paul says they're fruitless. They don't amount to anything. They leave you empty-handed. They leave you with nothing to show. And so walking the walk involves turning away from those things, having nothing to do with those things as far as it depends on you. <clears throat> I once read a book in which the author talked about sin in these terms. <clears throat> she, the author said, um, in the life of sin, we were like prisoners in this maximum security prison. Um, held there, we, we couldn't leave. Uh, life was miserable. But Jesus came and set us free. He took us out of that prison and brought us into life in all its fullness. And, and this author said, for the Christian, sin is kind of like going back to that prison and hanging around on your vacations and weekends and, and, and uh, just enjoying that old life. It's, it's an absurdly contradictory thing to do, isn't it? Um, and yet we all do it. It's ingrained in us. But Paul says, Turn away from that. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. Um, and when we do turn away from sin and live as children of the light, Paul says, what happens? Verses 13 and 14. Um, everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it is said, wake up, sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. In my church growing up, we would say that every time someone was baptized and came up out of the water. We'd say it in unison, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. What Paul is saying is when, when Jesus shines his light on you, like the sun, the star of our, of our solar system, when he shines his light on you, you are then a moon that reflects his light to others. Whatever is illuminated becomes a light. And when you walk around in your, in your Monday through Saturday life, you are luminous with the light of Christ. Shining in the darkness, exposing evil, even by simply your presence. It's not that you... You know, Paul says, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. He's not saying we should go around pointing our finger and saying, hey, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner. By being a Christian with the light of Christ on you, you are reflecting that light and exposing evil for what it is. Have you ever noticed that, you know, those guys at work or those friends who are telling dirty jokes as soon as you walk over, they get quiet. <laughs> or the, the lunchroom gossip that's happening, as soon as you walk in, 
they realize, oh, may, maybe I shouldn't be saying that. Or um, uh, what's this other example? The, the person who is bitter and angry at God um, gets angry at you because they see the light of Christ in you. But it can also be positive. It can be attractive. People who are suffering and hurting see the light of Christ in you and are drawn to you. People who are friendless and lonely see the light of Christ in you and are drawn to you. Um, the spiritually hungry child who's, who's a neighbor is drawn to your house. It's the light of Christ shining in you. A non-hypocritical Christian has, has a luminous presence, is attractive. Um, and so that's where it's at. You are light. You're no longer darkness, you're light. So live as children of light. Be who you are. But one of the things I notice in Paul's logic here, especially in verse 15 onward, is that being who you are isn't necessarily um, automatic. It takes deliberate steps, deliberate choices, deliberate actions. It has to become first nature to us. It's not first nature right now. Um, look at verses 15 through 17. Paul says, be very careful then. What's the then for? Because, you know, you are children of light. But then he says, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Don't just go through your life, your day, your week on autopilot. He's saying, notice how you're living. Notice people around you. Reflect on um, whether you're following Jesus or not, whether you're living in a way that pleases God or not. Older translations of verse 15 would said, rather, walk circumspectly. Look around yourself. Walk. Pay attention to how you're living. And that's why our covenant says um, we commit to walk circumspectly in the world. To be just in our dealings, faithful in our engagements, and with integrity in our conduct. We're committing to, to um, live life with eyes wide open, paying attention to how we live, paying attention to Jesus making the most of every opportunity we have to do right and to please God. Now, let's face it for a minute. Um, life is brutal sometimes. Life is hard. Life is complicated. And it can be easy to be discouraged or confused or uh, to be overwhelmed by the darkness around you. Do you ever feel that way? I sure do. That's why Paul says the days are evil. There's an active force in the world trying to knock you off center, trying to 
get you to live in your old way, trying to um, pull you away from God and pull others away from God. That's why he says, be wise and understand what the Lord's will is and, and make the most of every opportunity. Everybody has to cope with the difficulty of life somehow. And if you aren't looking to Jesus to give you direction and hope, you're going to find something else to numb the pain and to escape your problems. Maybe it's watching TV all the time. Maybe it's using your phone all the time. But Paul, you know, they didn't have television or, or cell phones in the ancient world. Paul singles out one particular escape that was common in the ancient world and still is today. <laughs> Do not get drunk on wine, he says, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. I was walking up Middle Road the other day. And uh, just in fact, if you walk up there today, you'd see this. And I noticed just one empty beer can after another in the ditch. And it's all around here on the roads, you'll see that. You think, what kind of life does a person have to be living? What are they escaping to need to drink in their car on the way to work or on the way home as if that's the only thing that can get them through the day? Alcohol is such a common form of escape, form of numbing the pain. Um, perhaps for that reason, the original version of our church covenant in 1956 had this clause. It said, we engage to abstain from the sale or use of intoxicating beverages. That was in the church covenant. And that clause was changed not long after we adopted it, I believe, to say we abstain from any adverse habits which may hinder our Christian witness, which I think is better because um, to prohibit alcohol use is unbiblical legalism. But the truth is, um, it is a snare for many people. It, is, it does a lot of damage. Um, some of you had alcoholic parents or relatives, and you know firsthand the damage that it does to lives. Um, some of you struggle with it yourselves. And so Paul says, do not get drunk on wine, but be filled with the Spirit. You have access to a much superior comfort giver and sorrow soother and joy bringer. That's one way to walk the walk. Alcohol will, will drain life away, but the spirit gives life. Now, is it wrong to drink alcohol? No. Is it wrong to be addicted to alcohol and to have that as an idol in your life and to do so in a way that damages yourself and those around you? Absolutely. And so we, we agree to abstain from any habit like that, which may um, knock us off center or make us miss out on what Jesus wants. Okay, now I just want to zoom out again, uh, zoom out and kind of reflect a minute on this paragraph of the covenant 
together, uh, I mean, in, in its entirety, what, what are we committing to? We're committing to walk the walk of the Christian life. Um, we're committing with God's help to follow Jesus in all parts of our lives, Sunday through Saturday, at home and in the office, in public and in private, with our family and with our friends. Um, how we raise our children, how we conduct our business. And one thing I appreciate about this covenant is that it gives us guidelines without legalistic prescriptions. So it says we should have personal and family devotions. That's a good thing. It doesn't say what our schedule should be or what those devotions should look like. It leaves freedom for that. It, it doesn't tell us how to seek the salvation of our friends and relatives, but it says we will commit to doing that, to sharing the gospel. It, it doesn't tell us what habits are adverse to our Christian witness, but it does tell us to abstain from them. So there's freedom within, within these bounds. The bottom line is we commit to walking the walk. In other words, we commit to not being hypocrites. <laughs> now you may look at this list of things we're committing to do and just feel guilty i have at times felt a little prick of guilt reading this um you may feel like it's burdensome or like walking the walk is this high moral standard that we strive for that is exhausting but the truth is although following jesus is costly not following him is more costly uh, let me let me explain this for a minute think about the word integrity integrity means to to live up to a high moral standard right but the deeper meaning of that word is to be integrated to be integrated with yourself so to have all parts of your life connected in a coherent way not to be pulling them apart and so i like to think of it this way for the christian integrity is having um all parts of your life connected in and around jesus your sunday self and your monday self your private self and your public self your um uh your work self and your home self they're all connected in Jesus and by him. And sin, on the other hand, disintegrates us. It pulls us apart. If there is a, a disconnect between who you are on Sundays and who you are on Mondays, that is pulling you apart from the inside. If, if you worship on Sundays but give little thought to prayer through the week, that is attention that is pulling you apart if you um confess with your lips that jesus is lord but then but then live in sexual immorality or um, willful addiction that is pulling yourself apart disintegrating you the only way to walk the walk is to daily Ask God to make you a person of integrity that is integrated in Jesus. 
And by God's grace, that's what we are. This is not a church full of perfect people. This covenant is not saying we are perfect people. It is saying, by God's grace, we are recovering hypocrites. We are those who are being reintegrated in Christ. That's what a Christian is. So if you have, let me just get real for a minute. If you have a drinking problem or an anger problem or an unforgiveness problem or a sexual immorality problem, this church is a place for you. This church is for you. What you need to do is turn away from that sin and ask God to help you become a person of integrity. And he will answer that prayer. To do what Paul said, live as children of the light and find out what pleases the Lord. The truth is that while hypocritical Christians are the probably the biggest deterrent to people believing in Jesus, the opposite is also true. Authentic Christians are the biggest apologetic, the biggest attraction for Jesus. I want to share something in closing that I've had filed away in my notes for such a time as this. Uh, from 1991 to 2007, um, the Fuller Theological Seminary's School of Intercultural Studies, that's a college in California, they conducted a survey among 750 Muslims who had converted to Christianity. And these Muslims were from 50 different ethnic groups from 30 different countries, so it was pretty diverse. And the study asked these Muslims to rank different reasons that were factors in them deciding to follow Jesus. And you know, when you're in a Muslim uh, setting, that's a big decision. That often has huge social cost. So they listed the top reasons for their conversion to Christ. Um, and then all their answers together, they put them together and came up with the top nine reasons that all these Muslims had followed Jesus. Number eight was that as they read the Bible, they were convicted of its truth. Number four was that the prayers of Christians had healed the disabled and delivered others from demonic powers, which happens a lot in um, Muslim settings. Number two was that Christians appeared to have loving marriages in which the women were treated as equals. And I think you know what I'm getting at, what the number one reason was. Christians practiced what they preached. That was the number one reason why Muslims became Christians. Now, we don't live in a Muslim culture, but this is true for us. We are surrounded, and we live in a sea of secular pagans, and they are watching us perhaps eager to find reasons why Christianity is untrue, right? They're all too eager to write off Christians as a bunch of hypocritical phonies. And you know what? Perhaps I and you have given them reasons to believe that at times. But as they watch our lives to see if this Jesus guy is real or not, won't you give them a reason to believe that he is? 
Walk the walk. Once you show that he is real, live in the light, be who you are. Amen.